Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between the informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. Wigo has launched a new phase of its podcast. In this season, we will examine the pieces of the social protection system in order to better understand the challenges, opportunities and difficulties faced by informal workers, always taking a bottom-up approach, highlighting the workers' perspective. In the next episodes, we will investigate the different parts of the social protection system and look at it as a solar system in which, at the center, we have policy, legislation, governance, financing, then further out, program design, eligibility, and related issues, and finally revolving around the second orbit, implementation issues such as registration, delivery of benefits, and so on. We will give special attention to the issue of digitalization, looking at how technology is being used to improve the inclusion of informal workers across the different elements of the social protection solar system, but also we will discuss the risks and challenges involved. This is the third and last episode of the Financing Building Block. Previously, we discussed alternative ways to finance social protection extension for way speakers in India and in Argentina and the struggle to finance gig workers in Rajasthan. Now we explore the challenges of financing social protection in a changing world of work. What are the possible paths, strategies and innovation countries are undertaking to including formal workers? What about digital platforms? Is there room to improve social protection for these workers? To discuss these and other issues, we invited two guests, Sarah Cook and Ruth Castelbranco. Sarah is a professor and head of the School of Economics at the University of Nottingham, Ningbo, China. She has held UN positions as Director of UNRIS and UNICEF's Office of Research in Osenti. Her research focuses on China's economic and social development covering issues of gender, labor and social policy. Ruth Castelbranco is a senior researcher at the Southern Center for Inequality Studies at the University of Witwatersrand. Her research is focused on the casualization of labor, worker organizing and the redistributive role of the state. She holds a PhD in sociology also from the University of Witwatersrand. They talk to us about some of the findings and debates arising from their research. Let's hear our talk with Sarah Cook and Ruth Castelbranco. Ruth Castelbranco and Sarah Cook, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much, Cyrus. Thanks for having us. Okay, so let's dive right into it. What changes do you see happening in the world of work? How do they relate to uh, informal employment? And what do you think are the implications of these developments for the way social protection is currently financed and organized? Let's start with you, Ruth. Well, I think that what we're seeing in the world of work is a sort of 
process of continuing informality in the global south and growing labor insecurity in the global north. And so although we've seen high levels of economic growth in many different countries, definitely prior to the pandemic, and some have even recovered, job creation, particularly in the formal sector, has not kept pace with demographic change. There are many reasons for this, from the legacy of global restructuring under neoliberalism, financialization, automation in certain countries, certain sectors, and of course now also the challenge of climate change, the fact that the kind of path towards industrialization that was followed by many countries of the global north is increasingly unavailable to countries of the global south. Here in Southern Africa, what we've seen is de-agrarianization, for instance, uh, a sort of stagnant process of industrialization or deindustrialization. This constellation of factors have ultimately resulted in a, in a structural oversupply of labor, growing labor insecurity, and a declining wage share. And obviously, that has implications for social security systems that were built around this employment relationship. The first national social security schemes that were introduced were ones that were based on some kind of employment-based contribution, largely. And given both the racialized and the gendered nature of labor markets, women were often excluded. You know, they were only included in as much as they were wives or children of the quote-unquote male breadwinner. But also given the racialized history of colonialism and the dual labor regimes that emerged, for instance, in places like South Africa, many black workers or non-white workers were also excluded from these schemes. But this was the kind of scheme. And then in the post-colonial period, there was really a desire for a sort of as part of the racialization of labor markets. In, in Southern Africa to extend Social Security universally, right? But of course, this was still tied to ideas around structural transformation and full employment that have ultimately not materialized. In this context, I think we're wrestling with widespread informality and the recognition that employment-based schemes are not going to reach universal coverage. But what we're also seeing is growing labor insecurity in the global north. So that raises issues about how do you get to comprehensive social security and how do we reimagine it and reimagine co-financing. Thank you, Ruth. So one answer to changes in the world of work is to rely more or entirely on general taxes to finance social protection and scaling back the role of employment link contributory social insurance. What would the consequences of such a shift for workers and employers and societies? And what are the arguments to try to adapt social insurance to developments in the world of work? Uh, Sarah, do you want to take this one? Um, yes, thank you. 
Obviously, there are calls for expanding tax finance and non-contributory schemes. I think we're all aware of the calls for universal basic incomes and other kinds of grants to cover social protection. I'm not sure that we can say as an extension that there's calls for scaling back employment-linked contributory social insurance, there is obviously a, a barrier to extending it in those countries and for those populations where that don't already have access or coverage. But the um, issue then is, is how do we fund and how do we expand those kind of forms? And there is obviously um, some argument in favor of tax financed as opposed to, and even with, as, we, as we've seen with the work of WeGo, um, arguments around perverse incentives that when you've got both social insurance and tax finance, tax-based systems, there may be an incentive to informality. So putting aside that, that argument, I think generally the question then is, can we achieve the kind of level quality insurance against contingencies that a social insurance system provides through more general tax financed mechanisms. The concern obviously is, is a fiscal one that the resources available through tax finance system would be inadequate to fund the kind of benefits that considered to be necessary, equitable, etc. The other argument is how do you ensure that general tax finance systems really do provide entitlements and people can claim the benefits. Obviously, there's a very direct link between employment-based contributory schemes and the entitlements which, which they provide. So then, again, as Ruth has mentioned, we, we come back to thinking about co-financing arrangements. So the consequences of trying to, of say, seeing a reduction, a relative scaling back of contributory social insurance, I think the concern would be that that reduces both the quality of benefits and the entitlement and claim over those benefits. Could we do it some other way? How could we adapt social insurance to these changes? I think is still the question that we're grappling with in terms of where can that finance come from. I think the other key point about the employment relationship, obviously, is that it is a way of ensuring that capital contributes. And I think, as, as again, Ruth mentioned, we've seen a declining wage or labor share of income overall, um, more concentration of capital, more inequalities, reduced corporate tax rates. So somehow we have to redress this balance in terms of how capital is really contributing to the financing of social insurance. So I think, you know, in as the world of work changes, as these demographic transitions happen, as the relative share of labor in some of these manufacturing processes with automation declines, then we have to work out different arrangements through which capital also contributes along with labor, but for a population that may not always have that employment relationship. And that's the key challenge, I think, for, for the future of social insurance. Perfect. Thanks, Sarah. Ruth, do you want to jump in? Well, maybe I'll jump in with one of the examples, which is the platform economy, which reflects what, what Sarah has been saying. We see, because of the lack of regulation of the platform sector, Platform companies have sort of self-identified as tech intermediaries. They argue, you know, we're not employers, 
or tech intermediaries. Many are registered in tax havens. It's very difficult to actually hold them to account under the current regulatory schemes. And so as a result of that, if we look, for instance, at location-based platforms, FITS, we're now doing some research on workers in the e-hailing sector. Their business model relies on a huge labor force, but a labor force that they're not accountable for as employers. And so workers, platform workers, don't effectively have social security or to the extent that they have you know, been incorporated into social security schemes, it's often been on a voluntary basis in which they have to absorb the full burden of contribution. And so I think that that forces us to think about, well, how is it that you regulate this rapidly growing sector? Is it about the reclassification of platform workers as employees, which has been part of the policy arguments in some countries? Is it about introducing some kind of category like dependent contractor that also extends responsibility for contributions to Social Security to digital labor platforms? Is it about the state co-financing the contributions of workers to Social Security funds? I mean, there's, there's various different approaches, but I think what we see is, is sort of the intersection between the regulation of work and labor and access to social protection. And it's always useful to think about history and the ways in which various categories of sort of working classes have been made, unmade, and remade in response to these contentious politics between capital and labor. I mean, you know, the kind of labor brokering system that we see today in the platform economy is, is hardly new. We've seen it in agricultural workers, we've seen it in industrial workers and home workers. And I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned about past struggles around work and social protection in these various sectors. So uh, traditionally, social insurance is financed by contribution levied on employment. Assuming that the trends in the world of work that we've discussed will make this more difficult in the future, what are other potential strategies to generate the necessary financing, uh, Sarah? Um, yeah, so we've looked at a number of options, including various ring fence taxes, financial taxes, taxes on transactions, automation, etc. Let me just talk about a couple of these, and, and then I think Ruth m may be able to add. On, first of all, um, focusing on automation, obviously the big debates around a declining labor share in manufacturing processes and the automation of processes has led to some discussion of what is termed a robot tax, which you know is is intuitively very an appealing image on the sort of human-like machine that that can displace human beings, and that if we tax that, it can you know pay for whether it's for the retraining, re-employment of such workers, or more extensively for social insurance. I think those debates are really debates happening mainly in higher-income countries and those countries where automation is is proceeding more rapidly. But it oversimplifies really the debate. And we see a, a lot of opposition, both in terms of how it would be practically implemented. It's not so clear that a tax on that machine is the way to go, but also that it's 
quite circumscribed in holding capital to account. And so it really is a form of a tax on capital. And why not make higher taxes on capital? And what we see where robot tax has been discussed and, and sort of claim to be implemented is actually that what it's doing is reducing the incentives for capital to invest more in innovation technology, rather than really reducing or leveling the playing field for labor. So I think at the moment, uh, those kind of taxes on capital, we need to consider the, the sort of more narrowly defined robot tax it is more for low income countries or countries with large labor forces with high informality without the formal sector jobs being created is more about job creation than about taxing the automation because the machines aren't there, except in very few cases. South Africa is one case where there have been rapid automation in the automobile industry, for example. Governments have tried to use subsidies to try and incentivize employment in the face of automation. That's more the approach in lower income countries or countries with a large uh, labor force. The priority rather than taxing automation is, is how do we create more formal sector jobs that are covered by benefits. So the, the robot taxes has been presented as one, but doesn't seem a very promising route for lower income countries. The other taxes on financial transactions or um, on mobile banking, on these kind of digital transactions, etc., are another area of, the, of potential, maybe more promising, more feasible um, in many ways. But I think the main issues for some of them it is really about the design in terms of who the burden of tax falls on, whether they're on you know, there's some of them that are being experimented with and tested, including in, in Ghana, Kenya, we have examples. The potential to raise revenues is quite limited at this point, but they also risk being quite broadly spread out, including on lower income people. So we need to really look very carefully at how progressive these forms of taxation can be made to be if, if we're going to go down that um route. But clearly, I think in general, it's these taxes on financial transactions, on digitalization and digital flows, and on capital that we need to be looking at more carefully to, to think about ring fence taxes. The question then, as we mentioned before, is how to ensure that they can be utilized effectively for social benefits of social insurance and how to make claim on those kinds of taxes. Um, Ruth might want to add yeah. more on, on issues around self-employment. She focused a bit on the digital platforms. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges, um, and again, digital platforms exemplify this, is the question of jurisdiction, right? So here you have companies that identify as tech intermediaries. They're not necessarily registered in the countries in which they are mediating employment, as they would say. So how do countries measure the value that's being created? How do they ensure the payment of taxes? These are some of the big questions. And you know, Kenya recently passed a, a regulation on the platform economy for the e-hailing sector. And Uber took it to court to contest the idea that they were a transport company and to contest 
the idea that they should register in Kenya because they said they were registered in the Netherlands. And in the end, the courts ruled that, in fact, they were a transport company and they should register as such, which then opens the door to discuss taxation policy, labor policy, and social protection policy. But obviously, there needs to be a process of international collaboration, right, around, because these are multinational platforms that are operating across boundaries. The irony being that what Uber has done is to facilitate the taxation of the platform workers. So their income is taxed and directed to the tax authority in Kenya, in South Africa, and I think that's increasingly the case. And I think what that shows is that administratively, it's actually quite straightforward for companies like Uber and other platforms to make deductions to all sorts of agencies and to make contributions to all sorts of agencies, including the Social Security Agency. So in relation, perhaps, to other groups of workers in the informal or informalized economy, administratively, it's quite easy to hold these companies to account. So it's a political question about whether governments will move to regulate them at the national level and what kinds of stipulations will be in the regulations. Um, Unfortunately, in the Kenya case, It reinforced the idea that platform workers are self-employed, but it opens up a wedge for a further struggle around these questions. And ultimately, the outcome will be of a process of contentious politics, not just a sort of um, research-informed decision. So self-employment is still representing a large share of the employment. How do we deal with that? And are there lessons from what is going on with digital platforms. Ruth, do you want to take this one? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the self-employment as a category covers such a wide range of employment relations. And, and the work of WeGo has really been so helpful in terms of conceptualizing the difference between a legitimately self-employed person who owns the means of production, has autonomy over their labor, someone who perhaps like a home worker in the past is actually working and involved in some kind of labor brokering relationship, and then the employees that are also in the informal economy. And I think that the lessons from the past teach us that there needs to be a kind of differentiated approach by sectors, because sectors vary widely, but also keeping in mind these different kinds of employment relationships. Um, What we've seen in terms of incorporating the self-employed into social security systems is that it's largely been done without sort of thinking about co-financing. And so the range, the forms of incorporation might be quite different. In some cases, governments have set up as part of their national social security scheme, but they've set up some kind of different package, right? And that package may be a saving scheme, or it may be a sort of lower contribution package. But both of those then mean that workers aren't actually benefiting from the same kinds of benefits as workers in the formal sector. You know, a saving scheme is not the same as a pension scheme. And part of the reason that governments have done that is because they've kept this as sort of experimental, voluntary process. So there's a sort of idea that we start with a saving scheme, 
we build trust amongst the self-employed and eventually you know we move to sort of better coverage higher quality benefits and so on but ultimately what it's meant is that for the most part the self-employed have had to take the full burden of contributions so it doesn't meet the requirement of redistribution which is essential to social security but also the benefits are not adequate and in fact they're discriminatory so they don't meet the basic standards of what we would want a social security system to look like and so this then raises the question i think as we were discussing earlier of co-financing and where does that come from and i think here the the case of india and the welfare boards which have also been documented extensively by wego offer a very interesting example but of course that's one strategy another one is to think about government co-financing which has often centered on social assistance but could also be if we think about these various pillars together then we can think about uh, a sort of a co-financing of of workers contributions in the informal economy obviously there's also as the platform example shows there's a fair degree of informalization and i think there the debates are slightly different they're about challenging disguised employment relationships and holding employers to account and as sarah mentioned ultimately there is also a, a question around employment generation which goes beyond debates around co-financing or reclassification of workers which are about macroeconomic policy industrial policy and so on okay so let's move on so what do you think needs to be done to take these examples you have discussed so that they become proposals that can seriously be considered by governments ruth i think that there's a need overall for a conceptualization or or a rethinking of what social protection is we still see sort of social protection as as these various pillars social security or social insurance on one side social assistance on the other often under different ministries engaging completely different social partners even with different institutions you know so what would it mean to actually bring these together and to think coherently about how to achieve comprehensive social protection within the various you know groups but in a sort of collective way and i think that requires some conceptual thinking i think it requires also institutional reforms and and political commitment right to having actually comprehensive social security and bringing the various social partners that have often been limited to particular spheres together right into a sort of coherent discussion excellent sarah do you want to jump in uh, yeah let me let me just build on that a little bit because i think absolutely that contexts are very different across the world and in, across the global south and and looking from asia where we've seen you know a couple of decades of build social protection social security systems and building from many dispersed um experiments or municipal level programs or smaller schemes with multiple government agencies or ministries as as Ruth was pointing out um i think at one point in indonesia it was like social protection security schemes were set were across 17 different government departments so the sort of processes that we've seen there to try and construct 
depending on historical pathways, those kind of more comprehensive systems, I think have a lot you know, to offer in, in terms of lessons and, and the politics and the processes, technical processes involved. I think what's different now, obviously, is this issue of declining labor share, the relatively limited formalization of employment in many contexts. And even in um, Asia, where we've got some very rapidly aging and also digitalizing, automating um, economies. You know, these countries are, f- are facing big challenges on the financing side. And so, you know, I, th- I think the politics of building um, these systems, along with a new environment for funding, which involves not just the traditional risks involved in social insurance systems, but I think increasingly, and in this region, we see very clearly, you know, how we're dealing with aging at increasingly lower levels of income for those economies, and how we deal with also the climate shocks and what that's going to mean for insecurity, and how those kind of forms of social insurance that will have to be provided and financed um, through some kind of government schemes. These are all some of the issues that I think will keep the the problem of social insurance on the agenda and create the circumstances in which governments do continue to experiment, innovate and learn from experiences as things get implemented. So to wrap up, what I would like to know from you is, are you optimistic or skeptical that we will find ways to adapt the financing and organization of social protection to the changing world of work. What do you think are the key requirements to manage this transition in a fair and equitable way? You know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm hugely optimistic, but I think there is a need um, for this adaptation and transformation to take place. But I don't think, and probably in ways that we haven't yet really grasped or can yet imagine. So I don't think there's going to be a, a big and rapid transition. I think it's more likely, as I was just saying, to be a sort of process of evolution, of incremental change, of experiment and of learning. Um, and I think, you know, these new forms of social protection and the financing and organization will have to come to address the new risks um, aging and climate. And so some of those will be closely associated with employment and some will need other forms of mechanisms and findings. And so, you know, these issues will be of priority, I think, to governments to find solutions, but some of them also will need regional or global solutions, particularly when we're talking about some of the shocks associated with climate, some of the difficulties associated with aging populations, as well as the issues that we've have been the focus of lack of formal or lack of good, decent employment that covers um, these benefits. And I think that with you know the financialization of, co- of, of economies, the digitalization of economies, the levels of inequality that we have, the concentration of corporate power and wealth and inequalities, 
these all will need to be addressed if we're going to find adequate solutions. And I think, as, as Ruth has pointed to, there will need to be political shifts to deal with them. And so, again, I think, you know, it's hard to be very optimistic that this is a, a, that we have a clear pathway to these transitions. There will be, I think, periods of struggle and experimentation and people having to make claims and demands. But that process, I think, will continue just because it needs to continue. And, and you know, sitting in China, where I am at the moment, um, where we can see uh, the massive expansion of social insurance programs and social security programs coming up against this automation, lack of new employment opportunities being created, the thinking by governments to solving these issues. I think, you know, if it's happening in some places, it provides examples and models for what can happen in other places. So I think there's going to be a lot of innovation and potential for learning um, across different environments. Excellent. Ruth Castelbranco, Sarah Cook, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure. Please follow Wego's social media channels, Twitter and Facebook to get new research publications on social protection for informal workers. And please subscribe to our show in Spotify, Deezer, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss our new season on the social protection solar system. The next building block will be on registration. I am Siros Afshar and this was the Wego's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next time.